Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we've run out of anything clever to say about Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM. That was semi-clever in a meta kind of way. Yeah, see? Many people just say bland rapids and leave it at that. Ooh, bland rapids. I like that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio, my fellow Doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Hello. Uh, this week, we're going to take a look at uh, a group that's been making some headlines lately. Uh, a group known as The Family out in Washington, D.C. Everyone uses the term family to mean it's some sort of secret in-group. Would this apply to this family as well? Well, yes, it would. Um, and it's a secret in-group that is tied to recent headline makers, including uh, Senator John Ensign and Governor Mark Sanford. For those of you outside of the country or those of you out of the know, have both been recently part of uh, sex scandals. Mark Sanford was hiking the Appalachian Trail for the better part of a week when he was actually... Tangoing in Buenos Aires. Yeah, with his mistress, uh, which which to me, that one's just, that's a sex scandal. He's a hypocrite because he's one of these guys who when Bill Clinton got caught, he was calling for right. his head and blah, blah, blah. He's a hypocrite, okay? And, but that's and, about it. And fairly dangerous to disappear for a week when you're a governor of a state and literally no one knew where he was. Not very responsible, but no. I think it's news because it's pretty much destroyed his uh, credibility as a presidential right. hopeful. But yes, yeah. Or in the case of the other guy. Well, Ensign, uh, this is, uh, it's more than just a sex scandal. Yes, he had an affair, okay? He's one of these moral crusaders like Newt Gingrich and Rush Limbaugh and all of these people. Quick logical fallacy note. It, it, is, it is a form of ad hominem to say just because somebody's a hypocrite that their position is wrong. But I, I suppose when it is a, a, a question of who your elected officials are going to be, you know, you want them to stand by their beliefs uh, right. because that's what you're electing them for. Right, right, right. Um, his gets, gets much deeper because he was having an affair with someone on his payroll who was married to someone on his payroll. And then, of course, he put their son on his payroll as well. To and keep it quiet. To keep it quiet it is what the implication is. Yeah. And he's a big um, promise keepers. Yeah. Right. These are the guys who pat themselves on their back because they, uh, I don't know, because they don't cheat on their wives or something. Right. They, they, they refrain from beating them, which is as much as we which, could ask of anyone. Yeah. By yeah. the way, my, my, my father went to promise keepers a couple of times. My father was who, that before or after he was imprisoned? Uh, no, he hasn't been imprisoned. He's on the run from the law. It was uh, well after his multiple affairs um, and use of prostitutes, but before he actually left my mother for mm -hmm. um, a chambermaid in, in Pittsburgh. So, um, what? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. My family story is fascinating. One of my old pastors uh, thought Promise Keepers was a bunch of bullshit, too, and he had this little song that he would sing. When some of the the men in the in the men's group were heading off to to promise keepers rallies, he'd he'd go, "I'm a promise keeper, so faithful and so true. I've decided to love my family. What a novel thing to do!" <laughs> <laughs> 
But our concern is not with the promise keepers. Our concern is with this other organization that both these men are tied to. It's called the family. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a secret society, semi-secret, they say. Like uh, the Illuminati. Organ- yes, I know. Or the Stonecutters and the Simpsons. And this yes. is why I've been kind of critical or skeptical, at least, of you know how, how valid is this? And maybe mm-hmm. some of our listeners are thinking the same question. Whenever you start hearing about a secret organization that's running things in Washington. They're probably not very secret. Be- yes, behind closed doors. That red flag of conspiracy uh, yeah. theory type thinking should should be raised in our minds and we should ask you know what is the evidence for this and that's why we have Jeff Charlotte on the show today Jeff Charlotte he wrote, wrote the book on the family he quite did. literally yes not only did he write the book he actually lived with them in this this house on C Street in Washington DC where Mark Sanford turned for guidance during his marital affairs of which Hillary Clinton has joined Bible studies at the C Street House. I had house, not heard that. And where John Ensign uh, attends regular Bible studies as D- well. Did he live there? Or wait, yeah, actually, I he think, lives there. I think Ensign may have lived there or lives there. Yeah, well, they'll get into this, but the, the house, basically, they own a lot of properties there, where, and then this particular one is a place where a lot of congressmen can then live there cheaply because it's designated, uh, they don't have to pay you know taxes, it's right. church-related, and they can live there and do their congressional work and live there while they're in D.C. and then fly back home to their districts. And they know. do their Bible studies and their kumbayas and all of that stuff. And planned global domination. Right. <laughs> so let's move into our interview with Jeff Sharp. Jeff Charlotte is a contributing editor for Harper's and Rolling Stone. Charlotte is the author of Killing the Buddha, A Heretic's Bible, The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, and most recently, Believer Beware, First Person Dispatches from the Margins of Faith. Thank you very much for joining us on the show, Jeff. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. What is this group, The Family? Well, the family is uh, the oldest and uh, arguably the most influential Christian conservative group in uh, Washington and also in international politics. Uh, I'll put it in, in the words of some of his supporters, uh, David Quo, who ran uh, uh, faith-based initiatives uh, uh, in Bush's first administration, uh, describes them as the most powerful group in Washington that nobody knows. Um, uh, uh, another sort of supporter is a uh, conservative sociologist or sort of center-right sociologist named D. Michael Lindsay at Rice University who decided to try to kind of uh, quantify their influence uh, and those of other religious groups in, in Washington, and uh, did a survey of 360 uh, politicians who were either evangelical or uh, with evangelical ties, and, and national-level politicians. So he's speaking to congressmen primarily and uh, uh, included in the survey a couple ex-presidents, Ford and Bush Sr. And what was startling to him, uh, and I think a lot of... Uh, people who sort of follow these things was that uh, the family or the fellowship, as he calls it, um, uh, uh, got more votes for most influential group in, in Washington than any other uh, than any other religious right organization, really? more so than uh, James Dobson's focus on the family, the Family Research Council, uh, the old Christian coalition. The family came in number one, and what was startling about that is that here's an organization that says that it doesn't exist. 
Right. Um, and yet, and yet uh, the politicians are saying, oh, yes, they exist, we like them, and they're uh, influential in my decision-making. That now they have existed under different names before, right? The like the National Committee for Christian Leadership, the National Leadership Council, Fellowship House. They they've had different incarnations over the years, correct? Yeah, they were founded back in 1935. Uh, the founder of the group, uh, Norwegian uh, immigrant uh, preacher who had risen to some prominence named Abraham Berady, had a vision from God. God came to him one night and told him. Um, that Christianity had gotten it all wrong for 2,000 years. That, uh, this emphasis on the poor, the weak, the suffering, and down and out um, was wrong. That what God wanted him to do was to be a minister to those whom he called the up and out, uh, not the down and out, but the up and out, those who are powerful, and that God would choose certain leaders in business and, and, and government and work through them, and that Abraham was to help those people understand uh, their mission. So they, they formed then as a uh, National Council for Christian Leadership. Um, uh, by the early 40s, they were already uh, drawing in a sort of an international membership, and so they made it the International Christian Leadership. And then in the uh, late 50s, they called themselves the Fellowship Foundation. That still exists to this day, um, but they began, began proliferating nonprofits. And now you have this whole network of nonprofits, uh, the International Foundation, the Fellowship Foundation, the C Street Foundation, which internally they refer to overall as the family. They think the family is uh, what they a, a name that they choose with a. You know, a lot of people think that sounds creepy, and it's not like Charles Manson. Right. Um, uh, they uh, decided to start calling themselves a family in the early '70s because they wanted to emphasize uh, their sense of themselves as a social movement rather than an institution. Is this family in the sense of like a fraternity almost? Well, indeed, they do call uh, one another brother, um, uh, but there is, you know, whatever they they want to do, there actually is an organization behind it. And, you know, one of my favorite uh, sort of uh, illustrations of this, last year uh, I teamed up with uh, NBC Nightly News and we did a, we did a segment on, on, uh, on the news program uh, about the family and their influence in politics. And, uh, you know, NBC News is coming to this in mainstream media and they're a little skeptical at first. And, you know, so they, they spent some time reviewing the tax records, and before they called up uh, uh, one of the leaders of the group, and this guy, a guy named Dick Foth, is a uh, sort of uh, comes from uh, the Ashcroft, John Ashcroft's office. John Ashcroft is a long-time member of the family. Dick Foth says, "Oh, there's a terrible mistake. There's no organization here, nothing at all. You're just talking about a group of friends." And NBC News is able to say, "Well, how come this group of friends?" Uh, has a, a bunch of interlocked uh, uh, nonprofits, and you're moving, you know, tens of millions of dollars uh, through your organizations every year, and putting that on 990s. You know, uh, uh, Jeremy, uh, you and I could be pals, but I doubt we would file a 990 together <laughs> and uh, report that we are spending 12 million dollars a year on the vague mission on the right. tax form of making friends. They actually put that on their tax form: making really? friends. They spend 12 million dollars a year. So, so is this sort of is this a, an attempt, I guess, to keep their activities secret? You know, they get yeah, visibility but, through all these different satellite groups, but the core leadership then can remain anonymous. They don't even get visibility through the satellite groups. They, they don't. Um, the leader of the group is a guy named Doug Coe, uh, not to be confused with David Coe. And all these names sound so similar. Uh, the leader of the group, Doug Coe, 
um, likes to use as a, a model what they're doing. Says we're like the mafia, and and indeed the group <laughs> likes to call itself the Christian mafia. And he says uh, he says the body of Christ and the family should operate in that same way. And he says the more invisible you can make your organization, the more influence it will have. Um, so they're de- deliberately seeking uh, this low profile. They, they weren't terribly secretive. Until 1966, they, they, they were still pretty pretty low profile before that. 1966, Doug Coe uh, believed that he had a new revelation from God. God had communicated to him, told him uh, some changes in the organization, and he sent out uh, a memo, which you can find in uh, uh, the archive of any number of congressmen who received it, saying the time has come to submerge the profile of our organization, um, and that uh, from here on out. Uh, we will not take action as an organization. If you're doing work for the family, you do so on your own letterhead. You know, you you say this is me doing this rather than uh, the family. So, for instance, one set of documents I found uh, uh, in their archives from the 1980s, um, the, the family had decided that they felt very strongly about supporting some of the uh, right wing elements in Central America during that period, and uh, you know, some of the guys would later be associated with death squads. Really? They wanted to bring them up to the United States for meetings with uh, Reagan officials very early on in the Reagan years before those relationships were made. And so working through a series of congressmen, those invitations were extended. So each each leader is sending, you know, Dick Luger is sending out an invite to so-and-so uh, from Nicaragua. Um, this isn't the family doing it, and yet it is the family doing it. That's the work they're doing. And, you know, to sort of tie it into the present moment, one of the things that has come up since the Ensign scandal uh, came out, is that both Ensign and Coburn uh, have been traveling around the world describing what they're doing as official U.S. government business, but in fact, uh, the family through the International Foundation is paying for it, uh, according to uh, uh, the travel forms that they, they have to fill out. So, you, you, the, you know, it's this kind of invisibility, um, not, uh, not conspiratorial. You know, I, I would make that distinction, right. you know. An organization can decide that it doesn't want a, a public profile. That's not a conspiracy. Uh, that's a tactic. When Doug Coe says, um, the more invisible you can make your organization, the more influence it will have, that's a strategic decision. Right. With any kind of group that is going out of their way to be secretive, to conceal their actions, you know, this is the area where conspiracy theories can flourish. And I think a lot yeah. of people who listen to this show, quite rightly, whenever they hear people talking about some sort of invisible society that's uh, working behind the scenes and influencing government, that red flag of conspiratorial thinking goes up and, and they want to know, well, what evidence do we have for this? And you seem to have been able to follow a bit of that paper trail. How did you come to learn about the family and where did you find the evidence for your book? Well, I was working on my first book, Killing the Buddha, which involved traveling around the country looking at unusual religious communities. Uh, when a friend asked me um, if I would meet with her brother, this is way back in 2001, um, who uh, comes from a, a, it was a conservative Christian, um, uh, comes from a, a, a sort of prestigious Colorado family, and he had dropped out of his, uh, his career and dropped out of his relationship and moved to Arlington, Virginia, and the family was worried that he joined a cult. Hmm. Well, he was coming up to New York City where I lived at the time, uh, he said he was there to, uh, I'll never forget this quote, survey the ruins of secularism. Um, uh, and he uh, wanted to meet with me. And I'd known this guy for many years and, and frankly, always been kind of a jerk. Um, it was a, an anti-Semite. The first thing he wants to do is apologize. 
for that kind of rude behavior he had over the years. And in general, I found him just a much improved human being. And he wanted to tell me about this organization through which he had become uh, an improved human being. Uh, he called it the family. He said it wasn't an organization. He said it was just a group of guys. And he said, I should come down and check it out. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a Christian. He said, oh, it doesn't matter what you believe. You just have to obey. Hmm. Um, well, this is my method as a, as, as a, a journalist. You know, I get called an investigative journalist, but I'm the, I'm the laziest investigative journalist there ever was. You just have to invite me. <laughs> and I, I said, okay, sure. What, what the heck? I, I'll go down. I went down there. Uh, um, and uh, documented all this in, in a, a Harper's Magazine article. And for the the, 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 the rightful skeptics out there, I, I would uh, say that uh, the organization uh, never disputed what I wrote in Harper's. Um, hmm. That's uh, your but, your article, uh, Jesus plus nothing. Uh, yeah, about and it becomes sort of the first chapter of the book about living for uh, 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 close to a month with these guys. Um, and I was so startled by what I encountered. Uh, one was the level of political influence. Um, one of the guys I met while I was there was Senator Ensign. Uh, uh, then Senator Jesse Helms uh, came by for a visit. Uh, we uh, went over to another member, Senator Don Nichols, who was the time second-ranking Republican. Um, uh, I met Congressman Todd Tihar. It was just a... Uh, it was this very elite club. And as they explained to me, they weren't interested in converting the masses. They're not interested in the souls of ordinary folks. They are only interested in these people whom they describe as the up and out. And the other thing that really uh, alerted me to the idea that there was some unorthodox theology going on here um, was the constant reference to, uh, uh, this is going to raise every red flag, constant reference to Hitler. Now, I should say right away, these guys are not neo-Nazis. This is not some kind of white supremacist neo-Nazi cult. Rather, what they find interesting in Hitler um, is this model of uh, what they call, uh, what they, they want to pursue something they, they call the totalitarianism of Christ. And they say Hitler is the right model of total commitment and strength. Uh, as they're wow. fond of saying, he says, look at what Hitler did. He took a couple of buddies in the back of a Bavarian beer hall and look at what those guys, by being absolutely loyal to one another, were able to accomplish. And... You know, I suppose technically that's true. Um, yeah, well. uh, but it's a, it's a, it's an odd approach to things. Um, and so after I left, uh, the the real breakthrough for the book was discovering that they had um, dumped 600 boxes of documents and uh, about 150 tapes as well uh, at the, the Billy Graham Center archives in uh, Wheaton, Illinois. It's a uh, collection 459 uh, under the Fellowship Foundation. And I give those bibliographic details only because I. I have great respect for skeptics out there. and um, You know, the book is uh, its a trade book, but we did the whole footnote apparatus because we want people to go right. and look at those documents themselves. I was born and grew up a lot of my young life in Wheaton, Illinois, and Wheaton College was uh, a college I was seriously considering. And I'm wondering, is there are there any formal ties between the family and that institution? No, I, 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 there aren't. I mean, Wheaton... Uh, I, I've heard it referred to, and perhaps you had as well, as a sort of the uh, the, the evangelical Harvard. Um, right. It's a it's a very good school uh, in that evangelical universe. Um, uh, the main thing is that they have uh, they have really the best archives. If anyone's doing research mm-hmm. on on history of uh, American evangelicalism, they have the best archives uh, in the country. One of the leaders of the group, uh, a guy named Richard Halverson, no longer alive, um, uh, was Senate chaplain under Reagan. 
he had gone to Wheaton, and so there's you know probably some friendships there. Right. Uh, but they needed a place to dump these papers, um, which they didn't even organize. I mean, it's 600 boxes of very uh, shoddily organized uh, papers on which the archive has tried to sort of impose some some order. But you know, you're, you're just sifting through memos, letters, diaries, classified government documents that have just been thrown in there. Uh, it's an incredible treasure trove of stuff. Uh, what were you thinking when you discovered this? I mean, it it, it seems like all this information just dropped in your lap. Weren't they concerned that if they if they gave if they put this material in a in an archive that people like you were going to be able to dig it up? Well, they are now. Uh, since I did this, and the L.A. Times uh, did a, a major investigation, and some uh, uh, some of the foreign press did investigations, and now you see academics looking at it too. Um, they have put some restrictions on it. Uh, you can't look at papers going back uh, 25 years. Um, so there, I think their idea is that to protect uh, the living and perhaps still still culpable under uh, mm. uh, a criminal prosecution for some of these things. Um, uh, so, for instance, one of the stories I tell in the book is their role in and uh, in, in really the almost sort of biblical destruction of Somalia. Um, which they played a pretty prominent role in, and that took place in the late 80s. I wouldn't be able to do that now, uh, but since I was there in Xerox the documents, I was, you know, did so legitimately when they were still open, I could do that. The thing with the family is, why do they dump these documents? This is also sort of a clue that this is not a conspiracy. They're not, you know, hiding at all costs. They're just right. avoiding the public eye. Um, and I think for many, many years, they've known... Um, that they don't have to try too hard to do that. And part of the reason that comes in is that they're really working in politics. So the reporters who are looking at them are political reporters uh, who are notoriously illiterate about religion. They don't get it. They don't understand what it is. Mm-hmm. They think they, they, they can only understand religion when it takes two forms. If it's, you know, uh, uh, a big fat guy in a too tight suit pounding his pulp and thumping his Bible and shouting, you know, uh, uh, something about America... That they get, they can understand that. Or if it's a thing like Mother Teresa, that they get, they can understand that. They can sort of extend, understand these extremes, you know, right. the dangerous fanaticism or the innocuous spirituality. They don't get um, religion that is more sophisticated. And particularly when it comes to uh, Protestant conservatism, um, they have a, they tend to think of fundamentalists as, as Washington Post once famously described them as something like the rural, poor, and largely uneducated. And so they're not really seeing folks like John Ashcroft or uh, um, Senator Ensign or, or uh, Governor Sanford, um, Senator Coburn, um, not only Republicans, Senator Mark Pryor from uh, uh, Arkansas is a member of the family and told me that through the family he had learned that Jesus did not come to bring peace but to take over. Um, but you have to know to ask those questions. And I think the political press doesn't and hasn't been interested in asking those questions, um, partly because the family, they're not seeking uh, to smash the establishment and displace it. They are the establishment. They're part of the establishment. They are, in the words of one Christian right leader uh, who admires them, this is the religion of the status quo. Hmm. Reading some articles and reading portions of your book, it really does seem to be a religion about the status quo and, and not any theology I would have ever recognized. I mean, from my reading of the New Testament, if, for example, the epistle of James, um, Christians are not supposed to suck up to the rich and powerful and, and look for their favor. The message I get through most of the New Testament is very anti-imperial. They're, 
they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire, and uh, and so uh, an, an imperialist viewpoint, I don't think, is supported by the New Testament. How do they reconcile this with their theology? I guess I'm saying. Well, uh, I mean, they begin with a um, a sort of dumbed down Calvinism with the idea of themselves as an elect, as a, as, a, as a new chosen, as they put it. They say the Jews broke their covenant with God and are no longer hmm. chosen people, and so uh, now God uh, indicates it's chosen in this other ways. And um, uh, there are certain visionaries, like the leaders of this group, who are able to see leaders who have been chosen for their position by God. And once you've been chosen, it doesn't really matter what you do. Um, uh, you should try and do good things, but it doesn't matter if you don't. And I think Governor Sanford illustrated the theology very, very aptly when he uh, compared himself the other day uh, in justifying his decision to remain in office, but he compared himself to King David. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot, again, the political press caught on that that didn't sound right. You know, that sounds a little arrogant. But they understood it as him saying King David was a guy who sinned, but he tried really hard, and he, you know, he pulled himself up. That's not how Governor Stanford meant it, um, because, and I'm aware of this, because he, he talked in other interviews about where he got this idea. He did get it from the family. Uh, it's a core teaching of the family. In the book, I describe a scene uh, in which uh, uh, David Coe, who's also been in the news lately as, as a sort of the uh, fixer for Senator Ensign, uh, David Coe explains the meaning of, of, of King David and the family theology. And he's speaking to a group of young men. This is the men that I live with at Ivanwald, uh, men being groomed for leadership. And he's saying, why do, we, why do we look up to King David so much? And one of these guys uh, says, uh, because he was a man of faith. And uh, David Coe says, well, you know, sort of. Another guy says, because he was a, a very good man. And, and David Coe says, no. In fact, he was not a good man. He was a terrible man. You know, he seduces another man's wife, arranges to have the, the, uh, that man murdered. I mean, this is an awful guy, and, and yet he's one of our heroes. Why? Uh, and the guys still aren't getting it, so David Coe decides to use a contemporary example. He turns to one of them and he says, Bo, suppose I hear you raped three little girls. What would I think of you? And Bo, who is, you know, human, says, <laughs> you think I'm a monster. And, and David Coe says, no, I would not because you're chosen. Wow. And in the family's theology, if you're chosen, the normal rules don't apply. And that extends even to morality, morality, ethics, uh, even the very idea of right and wrong. They, they say these are all secular constructs. These are all man-made ideas. Um, that, well, our job is not to construct a system of morality and follow it. Our job is simply to obey what God wants. Uh, we don't ask questions. And, and they, you see that literally again in coming up in their theology. Don't ask questions. That's terrifying. Um, <laughs> it, it is the opposite. And it gets more terrifying when you think, okay, well, where do they get their marching orders from? Right. Are, they, are they scriptural literalists? No. These guys barely read the Bible. They're not really very invested in Scripture. Um, what they do is they believe that following uh, 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 Matthew 18.20, when two or three get together, um, they're with them. They believe that if they can organize chosen men, uh, these chosen elites, into these small prayer groups, like the one Senator Ensign and Senator Coburn were in, um, that these guys can sit down and God will reveal himself to them in that private setting. Uh, and that he'll tell them, uh, 
not, you know, grand pronouncements, but really very specific things about how to lead their lives. And one of the things that they emphasize, one of the reasons they don't like church very much, is they see churches separated out from this totalitarianism of Christ. They want every single decision filtered through what they call Jesus plus nothing. So the decision, for instance, of uh, Senator Ensign, of what am I going to do about this mistress, uh, the prayer group is going to say, here's how you're going to handle it. Um, and as we know, in fact, Coburn, his only issue was the $96,000 payment to Ensign's mistress. It was, it was too small. It should have been $1.2 million. Wow. So, so if this is the take that they have, that you recognize the elect, you recognize God's chosen through their power, not through the life that they live, not through the fruits that they bear, um, this, it seems like they might feel fine getting in bed with some pretty shady characters. Absolutely. And, you know, the, the, the stuff that, that I, the reason I think the family is important, up to now you can sort of say, gosh, that sounds kind of creepy, these guys uh, believe these strange beliefs, and uh, uh, they seem certainly shady on, on, on their personal affairs with John Ensign. But you could say, well, so what, you know? Right. Well, here's the so what. The so what is when they apply this to foreign affairs. And I think the family is, is it also gives us a sort of corrective to the idea that uh, American fundamentalism is chiefly concerned with personal morality and, and things like abortion and so on. Mm-hmm. That's one, that's the populist branch of American fundamentalism. The elite branch has been uh, uh, concerned with, uh, for 70 years, this group, really primarily two issues. Um, one, economics, what they call biblical capitalism, and two, uh, foreign affairs, um, the spread of the gospel through the world, which they think is best accomplished through the spread of biblical capitalism, and America is the best vehicle for doing that. So they're not nationalists in that uh, strict sense. They simply think that American power is the best vehicle for spreading their worldview. And uh, uh, one story I, I tell in the book is, is how they did that through uh, the dictator Suharto, who uh, came to power in Indonesia, uh, you know, one of the largest countries in the world, in 1966 by slaughtering uh, some 600,000 um, of his fellow citizens whom he decreed as communists. This historical record now. This is not a controversial statement. The CIA helped him do it, mm-hmm. but later on called it one of the worst mass murders of the 20th century. The family called it a spiritual revolution. Wow. Uh, and they decided that Sahardo, even though he was Muslim, had been chosen by God to liberate uh, Indonesia from socialism and uh, to support God's work in Indonesia. They began sending him delegations of congressmen and uh, oil executives. And they've always been very strong in those kind of big international industries like oil. Uh, and, of course, Indonesia is a major oil com- mm-hmm. uh, country. And you'll find in the archives, uh, one document uh, Senator Mark Hatfield was a member of the family prepared for uh, President Nixon. And the family would do this. They would prepare routinely, uh, here are a list of our foreign assets through which you can conduct diplomacy if you want. Um, they said, we have Sahardo. Uh Sahardo has indicated that he would like to have communications with the United States through this channel. Uh, he has been meeting regularly with our men. Uh, he is willing to pray to Jesus with us, even though he's a Muslim. Uh, and uh, we, uh, you know, we have this great relationship. Uh, an executive of Continental Oil, which is today Canoco, uh, recently returned uh, for uh, a session of prayer and discussion with Sahardo and described it as the most spiritual hour of his life. And, uh, of course, if we look at the history of that oil company, we see it was also one of the most lucrative.
that's amazing. And uh, is this a common thing? I mean, how widespread is their influence throughout the the world as far as international politics goes? Uh, again, I'll sort of turn to their the supporters. Uh, David Quo, who I mentioned earlier, was the uh, 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 special aide to Governor uh, President Bush in, in his first administration, uh, first term that is, um, 2000-2004, said, um, uh, and is also uh, sort of a member of the family who is will discuss fairly openly his career was made by the family, his connections with the family. He says their reach into governments around the world is impossible to overstate or even grasp. Uh, James Baker, who uh, has been an important figure in both uh, uh, father and son Bush administrations, a real power broker, talked about um, the influence of the family. He says it's just astonishing. Uh, uh, it's it's so important uh, for the work of uh, uh, American foreign affairs. Because I remember one time he says I was uh, landing on the uh, in Albania, and I was the first post Cold War. I was the first U.S. official to go to Albania when he was Secretary of and he says, I, uh, we ran on the plane, get out on the tarmac, the prime minister comes out and says, I greet you in the name of Doug Coe, the leader of the family. And that, wow. to James Baker, was a great illustration of how useful this group was. Bush won, Bush Sr., in fact, uh, praising Doug Coe at the uh, uh, 1992 prayer breakfast, said, I want to praise Doug Coe for, I wouldn't quite call it secret diplomacy, I would call it quiet diplomacy. Which is interesting. Apparently, uh, uh, Bush was not aware of one of the oldest laws in the book, going back to the very beginning of the diplomacy, the Logan Act, which forbids private diplomacy. So all of this uh, private diplomacy going behind people's backs, setting up secret meetings between different diplomats and officials, this all seems very anti-democratic. No, as they're fond of saying, uh, the kingdom of Christ is a kingdom. It's not a democracy. Um, they uh, believe that they are building that on Earth. They're they're, they're post millennialists, uh, 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 which of course you know means that uh, they are not waiting for the imminent return of Christ. They believe that they have to sort of do the work of building this uh, kingdom, preparing this kingdom for Christ to return, hmm. um, uh, and that, that that's a, a long term prospect. It's an interesting sort of worldview because of course in the 19th century that led to a lot of progressive politics. Right, that's what I was going to say. Liberation yeah. theology and. Exactly. Exactly. They they take it uh, uh, a little bit differently. One of the you know democracy is one of those things that, that it's right in their morality. It's okay for the little people. Uh, it's fine uh, if that's how you do things, um, but it is not God's order. Uh, and in fact, uh, Abraham Baradi, the founder, in describing what he uh, was doing, said, "I'm creating these private prayer cells so that chosen men, these powerful men." can get together and make decisions beyond the din of the vox populi, Whoa. beyond the racket of the voice of the people. And he went further than that. In the early documents in the 1930s, part of the reason that they began was you had these very elite guys looking around, and they felt like the world was breaking apart, as it was in the mm-hmm. 1930s. They felt like democracy, democracy hadn't cut it. Democracy was not going to make it. It couldn't stand up to uh, fascism and communism which were the really rising, surging powers in the world at that time. And they thought, well, communism is much stronger than democracy. Fascism is much stronger than democracy. They liked a lot of fascism, but they weren't quite fascist. They said, we need a third way, and our third way is through God. Uh, or as uh, one, uh, I don't know how to describe him, Frank Buckman, as leader of the Moral Rearmament Movement, and uh, 
was sort of a, an inspiration to, to Variety. He said in 1936, uh, he says, you know, would it be so bad to have a fascist dictator, a di- dictatorship, if it was led by God? <laughs> he says, of course, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they don't, they don't see that. They, they see that democracy, um, democracy means you and I asserting our will over how things should be. And uh, that's in defiance of God from their perspective. Since your book came out, and now that there's a little bit more public scrutiny on these people, do you think there's any impact? Are politicians wanting to distance themselves now more from this family than perhaps previously? Yeah, I think so. I think there's a minor impact, and I think there could be a lot more. If, if the American press were to follow the model of uh, some of its foreign counterparts uh, that, that, that do their job. And, and my favorite example uh, is the country of Norway. When I was at Ivanwald, actually, one of the, I think, second or third days I was there, we had a visit from the, a guy named Kvel Bondovic, who was the Prime Minister of Norway, social conservative. Norway is a pretty liberal Scandinavian country, but they elected this conservative Prime Minister. And uh, I thought that, that was one of my clues that this was not your typical Christian right group. Anyway, I ended writing my article, and uh, a Norwegian journalist named Tor Gerstad uh, with Dagbladet, which is one of their big dailies over there, noticed it. And uh, he was assigned to the Prime Minister. He traveled with the Prime Minister, and he noticed that the Prime Minister was going on the public dime to various prayer retreats and spiritual meetings and so on. So he did what a reporter's supposed to do. He asked questions, not with any kind of uh, agenda, said, well, you know, why is the public paying for this, and what's happening at these things? Um, and Bondovic, the Prime Minister, dug himself in deeper, saying, oh, no, it's legitimate for the public to pay for this, because actually I do, I do government business at these. So that really interested this guy. He said, well, you're doing government business at prayer meetings? Well, you know, what kind of meetings are these? And uh, they ended up sending a team of reporters over the United States. They discovered that the conservative Norwegian ambassador had been taking these sort of semi-regular meetings with John Ashcroft to uh, help set uh, Norwegian policy. And they put this on the front page of the Norwegian papers for, for weeks on end. It became a sort of uh, an almost a Norwegian Watergate um, it became uh, a scandal, um, as it should have been. Yeah. And the people, that government ends up getting voted out of office. And I, I don't want to say solely because of their family connections, uh, but I think a lot of people in Norway, conservatives who had voted for them included, felt like, hey, this isn't what we uh, elected you to do. So that's the model. And, um, you know, that's one small impact. And I'm glad my reporting for Harvard was able to, to, to start this uh, snowball that got rolling in, in Norway. But you see other things. Um, uh, you, you see, I think, and this can be the, the real way you can sort of push back against these things, it's not going to be some sudden uh, uh, end to the family. It's going to be uh, getting politicians to think twice before right. they associate themselves with this. And so when NBC News did their segment on, on the family, and they focused on Hillary Clinton's connections, Hillary, you know, who's obviously not a fundamentalist, right? But um, was using this organization for that kind of quiet diplomacy. She praised the leader Doug Coe uh, as um, uh, a genuinely loving spiritual mentor and guide. She'd even taken him along on some of her various travels and so on. So NBC News says, it "says All right, we're going to play you some clips of Doug Coe uh, talking um, uh, about." Uh, oh, here he is talking about. Uh, um, uh, you know how Jesus said, uh, you got to put your, your, uh, me before your mother, father, brother, sister. Hitler said that. Mao said that. That's what they taught the kids. They now even had the kids killing their parents. But it wasn't murder, because it was for building a new nation, a new kingdom. Well, you play that clip, and then 
or, or, or some various other uh, co-Hitler clips, and then you have Hillary, uh, ask Hillary, is this a genuinely loving spiritual mentor in God? Hillary's response was, I never gave money to Doug Coe. I'm not a member <laughs> of that organization. And, you know, that's that. That's the end of that story. But I think what we've done is sort of uh, um, uh, put a little bit of a hedge uh, between exactly. the family. Let politicians who maybe didn't know better. Uh, you, you come to Washington, you're invited to join a prayer cell, uh, you ask one of your aides to say, check this group out, and you look at it and you say, you know what, I think I'm going to find another church. This is mm-hmm. maybe not the church I want to be involved in. Well, that's that's great, and hopefully, hopefully that's exactly what we'll see. For our listeners, uh, is there a website uh, where people can learn more about your, your books and perhaps purchase some? It's a little thing called Amazon.com. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you can go to uh, JeffCharlotte.com. There's a little bit more. Uh, I, but I think more interesting would be to go to uh, KillingTheBuddha.com, which is a, a web magazine where we talk about uh, belief and unbelief and all its various uh, uh, all its various manifestations. And if you want to learn more about the group, there's two excerpts uh, from the book up there now, but there's also a whole lot more from all sorts of writers writing all kinds of issues from from atheism to fundamentalism and everything in between. Great. Well, and real quick before I let you go, uh, I just wanted to mention to our listeners your other book, Killing the Buddha. I uh, talked to you b- before the interview uh, about how I read that book back in college, back when I was a uh, atheist living in a in a Christian fundamentalist Bible college. And uh, reading Killing the Buddha was in a way a, a sort of comfort. It, it showed me that I wasn't the only one with unorthodox religious beliefs in a very orthodox setting. Yeah, well, that's wonderful to hear. I, I think that's uh, uh, that's the book that I'm proudest of being associated with. I made it with another writer named Peter Mansell, and then we called on a, a whole sort of chorus of writers to uh, to help us uh, uh, review Scripture and the role of religion in American life through a kind of heretical lens. And uh, um, I'm just so glad to hear that... that um, the heck with Norway. The fact that it helped you at Grace Bible College is a, is a better impact for any book than... Well, I appreciate it very much and all the work that you're doing, Jeff Charlotte, um, to make these issues aware and to engage in this, this broader conversation about religion in our culture. Thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Thanks for having me, Jeremy. So all this talk about Christianity and capitalism and free market economics, even fascism, got me thinking about an earlier episode where we talked about does the Bible better support a capitalist view or does it support a socialist view? Right. And we discussed stuff in the early Christian church that indicated that the lifestyle lived by those Christians was a communal lifestyle where things were shared in common, very similar to kind of a socialist utopia. Right. Book of Acts is is rife with that kind of uh, commie talk. I think it's time that we revisit this, but from the opposite angle. And that is the claim is often made that capitalism, the rise of capitalism in Europe, and the continued strength of the capitalist mindset is due to something called the Protestant work ethic. This idea that the Protestant work ethic 
has influenced the spread of capitalism and, and the origins of capitalist society is something that I even kind of accepted uncritically. I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've heard it uh, all my life growing up in, in being raised in Christian schools and all of that. And, you know, it's that Puritan idea yeah. that you work and... Um, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. There you go. By the way, quick tie-in. Friday was the 500th anniversary of John Calvin's birth. Oh, oh yay. Hometown hero. That's Good awesome. for him. But this is something I accepted pretty uncritically. I think I even read a book from a, a secular humanist author, Eric Fromm, psychologist in the psychoanalytic Escape from vein. freedom. Yeah, escape from freedom. Mm. And uh, basically the thought is with Calvinism and predestination, the Protestant mind was they could not be sure of their salvation. They never knew if they were elect. And so this created some sort of tension or stress in their mind where they had to constantly confirm their worth, right, through good works. Yeah, or that either if somebody's well off or uh, apparently blessed, that means that they must be doing something right. That, and that suggests that they're, they may be one of the elect few who are saved. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't confirm it because there's always that tension. You never know. So this created the type of person that was ripe for capitalism, going forth, hardworking, sober, and the flip side, that, that leisure time is somehow uh, sinister in that if you, if you just relax or do something just because of sensual gratification, you know, that might be apparently harmless, right. that's, you're not working. And you're, and you're right. just, uh, that's idle hands of the devil's workshop. And, and this was compared to the other worldview of Catholicism at the time, which they sensual. said, yeah, was... Be lazy. Yeah, it was more easygoing, basically... Drink beer. You do these works, you do the right kind of uh, sacrifices and, and penance for your sins yeah. and everything. And, and you know, you can kind of take a laid back view. Our country should have been founded by Catholics. There wasn't any kind of drive like Mexico. for material success in that kind of uh, philosophy. Well, I've been reading a book recently by Jacques Barzun called From Dawn to Decadence. And for the first time saw a really strong critique of this historically. What Barzun basically claims is that, you know, this is this is all from very early in the 1900s psychoanalytic work, which is not the hardest of the psychological sciences, to say the least. Sociologists like Max Weber, a socialist uh, by the name of R.H. Tawney, and he said in some ways it was actually to bolster socialist ideas at the time by identifying capitalism with Calvinism, kind of an outdated, very strict, puritanical morality. Sneaky. Yeah. Barzon goes on to show that historically the rise of capitalism has very little to do with Protestantism. Uh, First of all, the idea of allowing trade based on capital and investment uh, because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's wrong to charge somebody interest. Right. That but is, you can keep them as slaves until they pay off their debt. Of course. That's of course, okay. Yes. Uh, but but interest, to not so give much. somebody a loan and charge interest for it back was com- considered a sin. And so the church adopted that teaching as well. Well, back in the Middle Ages, abbots could lend any of their, Barzun says, any of their surplus funds at interest. And if the rate was no higher than 10%, they receive a dispensation from the guilt of usury. So as long as they weren't nice. charging more than 10%, they would then receive forgiveness for their sin of, of charging interest. Wow. But if you charged... Talk about a practical amount. workaround, right? Yeah, no kidding. 
most of the innovations that set up the capitalist system came from these large-scale banking enterprises that were thriving in Italy even before the time of Protestantism and mm. where Protestantism really never got a very strong foothold, being the headquarters of the Catholic Church. And further goes to say that if you actually look at the Protestant strongholds in Europe during the time that capitalism is taking off, they were the least financially well off of them. Really? Calvin and Luther, of course, their sermons are full of condemning people for the, the materialism of the age and you viewed profit making as a sin. You should have a very modest uh, amount of possessions, just enough that you can afford to give some money to charity and that sort of thing. So it certainly doesn't seem to line up very closely with Calvin and Luther's rhetoric. So, so both the mafia and capitalism are, uh, are growing out of Italian principles? Well, it was a revolution I wonder in, if there's in a banking, basically. Yeah. Dan Brown would say that everything's connected. Yeah, of course. And so end result is there doesn't seem to be historically much of a basis for accepting this viewpoint. So why is it so strong? And I guess my question for Luke is, is there any basis psychologically? Ideas in psychoanalysis uh, or even the whole approach has been discredited in a lot of people's minds. But, you know, who knows? Is there any sort of basis? It does adopting a Protestant viewpoint lead to a work ethic that's consistent with capitalism? Yeah, a lot of those theories are popular, like with Fromm's theories, because they seem intuitively appealing. Like, oh, we can apply... This, you know, the, the harsh father Protestant model and the warm, loving Catholic model uh, of the, you know, the Virgin Mary. We can apply that to societies. What, that was what Fromm's deal was, was applying basically psychoanalytic principles to on a social level. But it doesn't hold up, as you said, because um, uh, and the, the construct of the Protestant work ethic, the PWE, has been heavily studied. Uh, you see that in social psychology all over the place. It retains that name, but uh, it doesn't necessarily work out that being Protestant or Western in some ways makes you more of that thing than other cultures. So what people, they still use that term. So it refers to things like Protestant work ethic refers to, as we said, avoidance of time wasting, mm -hmm. um, uh, anti-leisure, uh, hard work yields outcomes, the belief that if I work hard, I'll get ahead. Some people share that trait more than others. You guys might remember back a couple episodes ago when I was talking about my research on the just world belief. Yeah. That in social psychology, that's very similar. The, the belief that world operates out of a sense of justice. So if I work hard and play by the rules, I'll be rewarded. And if I don't, I'll, you know, bad people are that way because they've been punished for bad deeds. Mm -hmm. To think otherwise would mean that the world is essentially kind of random or that why should I work ahead if everything can be, you know, taken away. You could see how that would work into the Protestant right. work ethic. And those two, uh, when you measure them as traits, they correlate. People that hold a high just world belief also tend to be higher in traits of Protestant work ethic. But the thing with that that doesn't fit with the theory is, is that it's not just a Western Protestant thing. In fact, a lot of cultures are higher than Western cultures that are, let's say, up and coming. So like um, non-Western young people, especially like right now in China, you might have heard that there's a split mm -hmm. between some of the older people that grew up during communism right. that were like, you know, I'll just work a little bit. The state will take care of me. Mm -hmm. The young people are very Protestant work ethic in China right now. That is, I'm going to be a rapacious capitalist, get ahead, money is good. They're kind without of like being without being Protestant. So right. you can see there they have j all the trappings of basically having that mindset of work, 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 save money, you know, maybe lend it out, get ahead. Money is good. Deng Xiaoping type 
capitalism, but without the Protestantism, the religion is superfluous. In that w- case. What about Catholics? I mean, was there any truth to that notion that they were more laid back a about lot of it, earning wealth? And well, some of the other research shows that it's a result of affluence rather than a cause of affluence. And so, the, because the Catholics tend to be part sometimes of the lower classes, so like you know, immigrants, Irish and Italian right. and whatnot, in Southern Europe, there that they actually wouldn't have a Protestant work ethic, not because of their religion, but because they're screwed. They didn't have access to the um, money. Learned and th- helplessness right. type of thing. So take yeah. like the Kennedys. There's a family that, that was Irish Catholic, but then he ended up having money. And you would say that a lot of those, the, the Joseph Kennedy values are very Protestant work ethic, you know, right. Right. play the stock market Ambitious. and things like that. So, yeah. So the theory that it's linked to the religion is, is overly simplistic. It seems to be a trait that's actually that the money causes. And that, as we've talked about in numerous ways in the show, people justify through the religion. Now, the religion doesn't cause it. They would say, I want money. I want to succeed. I want to, you know, I'll charge right. and money to these lazy ass people over there. Oh, it's because God wants me to do that way. And they justify mm, it that way. Yeah. That was going to be it. my next question is knowing how much your kind of self identity can determine behavior. If actually this myth of the Protestant work ethic, now that it's so widespread in culture, if that might actually have any effect on almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sure. And to tie back into the family, a lot of the stuff that we heard in the interview and from, from uh, Charlotte's book on the family is that they seem to have very much this belief that people are elect because of the outcomes. Uh, even nasty dictator type people are blessed by God because they have this like they're successful. So therefore they must be doing something that's right. godly. It fits in with a lot of other really nasty psychological traits that we've talked about before too, like authoritarianism. Mm-hmm. The, the idea that s- power is good, that, that something's good because it comes from a power source, whether that's God or the government or whatever. And uh, there's another concept called social dominance orientation that basically life is hierarchical. It's dog eat dog. And people, some people believe that, you know, you better get on top and stick it to the other guy before he sticks it to you. All those traits tend to correlate with, uh, try to fit in with each other. And that's the insidious thing, I think, about some of the Protestant work ethic and authoritarianism and things that it justifies your own impulses to greed. Right. Hmm. So Protestant work ethic, maybe a sliver of truth to it, but a, but a much more complex and l- broader story than we've been, most of us have been led to believe. Yeah, but I think we can all agree that Buddhists are lazy, right? I mean, you're on board with that? Uh, sure. Yeah, no. But those those monks sell a lot of things. They they can get ahead. That's with that. true. They are they they're busy people. Well, I think the thing that worries me the most about like about the family stuff though is not just the secretiveness too, but essentially what I my reaction from reading the article is the amoral aspect. They sell themselves as religious, yeah. and yeah, we saw yeah. that oh they're you know that they counsel these people. What they're essentially doing is they they adopt powerful people into their organization, senators and congressmen, and then uh, their morality essentially is made power is the morality. Yeah. If somebody is is powerful, we'll work with them whatever they do you know we'll right. we'll try to maybe guide them into a christian sunday if they're having ethics. affairs if they're whatever it doesn't matter as long as they they get to retain their power but if you read some of those dialogues that that he wrote from the people in that in the c yeah. street house or whatever like that it's I can, it's they're, creepy. they're reading are praising they reading the hitler same bible that i've read and, and they're and, praising wow. hitler and uh um because you know, he, was, he knew how to organize dictators. people. He had yeah. their cells of people that they stick together and their brothers, whatever like that. That seems to be valued more than any objective morality yeah. in the case. Right. And where obviously where they're getting that from Jesus' social gospel, I don't even know. No, no, uh, it's power seems to be what they're worshiping. So maybe a creepy group. I don't, I don't know that it's a secret organization controlling the world, but they are certainly a uh, frightening 
Yeah, this uh, isn't Illuminati proportion right. stuff, but I was I was shocked to hear the level of involvement that they did have in steering certain policies in the. Th- yeah, I think one glimmer of hope is that what he talks about also is that because of their conservatism and, and kind of uh, views, that they're uh, uh, not used to being criticized. They're, they're unused to having critical questions asked. They don't know how right. to respond to that. And I think that just simply throwing light on it with this type of journalism, uh, if their views are good views, why not leave that open to public debate? I'd, I'd, right. be, I'd be willing right. to, you know, let's let's talk about, okay, so how do you justify this type of, uh, of morality? And that, as we've seen, though, my suspicion is that they're remarkably incurious about some things, about questioning things. I kept imagining myself if I had to sit in at a Bible study like that where the guy's trying to justify King David and being chosen about the things that I would say doesn't seem as if anybody brought up those questions. Yeah. You know, so are are we to emulate this as a role model? Uh, you know, and and now in Protestantism in general, now that their political hegemony in the Republican Party is being disrupted, and now that this information is out there, I'm sure a lot of Christians are going to start viewing these guys as a, as a cult, basically. Yeah. And uh, and there might be some backlash there and greater scrutiny. Maybe once politicians don't want to be associated with the family. You're not going to have people like Al Gore and Hillary Clinton getting involved with this to score political uh, brownie points. And just to do a dime store of psychoanalysis, what you see with the crack up a lot of these politicians that have affairs that were part of the family is I think this is what happens when you don't question your own beliefs or subject to the scrutiny. You know, if they if somebody right. if somebody assumes I'm good because I'm in this group, therefore I, God is with me, they lose control over uh, over everybody's negative impulses that everybody has. Right. Whereas the people that I think are a little bit more humble about it that say who knows whether you know, God is on my side or not, or whether, you know, power is something that's a good thing or not. Those people are the ones that are safer because they at least question their, their actions. If you're, if you think that God's on your side, no matter what you do, you're a dangerous person. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And you're going to screw and up. There seems to be a lot of those, um, in politics. And, and part of that, it's that conviction that's necessary to run for, a, I'm the right man for the job because I have this, this It, it appeals to narcissism. Uh, yeah. You guys probably also heard this week about the S- Governor Palin resigning. There was a big, very unflattering piece on her on... It'll be a the, couple the, weeks by the time this airs. Oh, well, that's yes. what we're talking about. Now. Yeah. So Palin's resigning, and a lot of the, the Vanity Fair piece that was written about her paints a very narcissistic picture of oh, her. Yeah. Yeah. That, oh, yeah. That, and it's not as if that's any surprise, but I think you just, you know, that, that somebody who believes, again, with her religious views, yeah. if somebody, the combination of thinking that you're on, that you're, you know, the tops, and that God is on your side is a very dangerous combination. Those people literally have blind spots mm-hmm. uh, to criticism because who are these people criticizing me? I'm an agent of the Lord. You know, who are they to criticize me? I was blessed by the African witch well, doctor. Well, it's time to quit so that we don't have to quit, I think, uh, Sarah Palin's That makes no sense so whatsoever. So she's not a quitter. That was, yeah. I don't want to be a quitter, so I'm stepping down. Well, remarkable. I'm, <clears throat> yeah, I'm just glad she's out of it. I'm sure we'll see her at a lot of fundraisers and uh, well, that's campaigning thing, and everything is else. She's going to be around even more now because I, I, I honestly, she'll I be think she's media, stepping down to do a media yeah. tour. With a seven-figure book deal, too. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, this is... She, I, I think it was actually Ed on his show, was saying how Sarah Palin, I, I don't think, likes to govern. When he when she actually has to do the work, it's no fun. And she'd much rather be out in the media bashing David Letterman for a joke that wasn't all that funny. Well, th- that illustrates what I was talking about before with the family is that this sense of, uh, of entitlement and immunity from criticism. These yeah, people are exactly. not used to being criticized. Nope. As long as you can run your own little fiefdom, you're fine because you have a bunch of yes And men. if she's not doing anything but being a media spokesperson like Dick Cheney, like Newt Gingrich, then she's, uh, you know, 
then the criticism doesn't matter. When she's a politician, then she's finally under fire. But if she's just the media's uh, conservative darling, she can run around and, and do what she wants. And we have another edition of Stranger Than Fiction. Find God, win a trip to Mecca, or Jerusalem, or Tibet. Uh, This story comes to us from The Guardian. There's a Turkish game show, and this is... um, I've never seen any Turkish game shows. Oh, well, you're missing out. Are they like Japanese game shows where you have to stick your hands in eels or sit in boiling water? I hope that there's an element of that to this game show. You can see it at a Turkish prison like Midnight Express. There you go. Uh, With this game show, the, the article says... It sounds like the beginning of a joke. What do you get when you put a Muslim imam, a Greek Orthodox priest, a rabbi, a Buddhist monk, and ten atheists in the same room? High ratings, people. High ratings. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, The way this game show works is on each episode, this imam, priest, rabbi, and Buddhist monk um, are given ten atheists. And they're given, I'm not sure how much time, I don't know if it's like an hour or if they have a week with these people. And if they convert any of the atheists to their religion, Mm -hmm. the atheists get a trip to the holy city of their their new religion. (laughs) So if the imam converts you, you get to go to Mecca. If, uh, if, If you go to Jerusalem for the Christian or the or the Jews and then to Tibet if you are converted to Buddhism. Wow. Not surprisingly. Do you get consolation prizes if you don't convert? <laughs> I, you Damnation. get an iPod or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your, prize, uh, well, uh, your yeah. prize is hell. I mean, that's the thing. Is the goal for the contestants to hold out and be like, you know, oh, no, 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 I'm not accepting your religion? Or is the real goal to say, oh, yeah, all praise Allah, free trip to Mecca? I was surprised when I read the part about how they screen them. We screen the atheists carefully to to make sure they're real atheists. They had to make efforts. They were somebody was just faking atheism to get the benefits of a trip. That's right. Yeah. They isn't, had to be real uh, atheists. Isn't one of the atheists none other than PZ Myers? I think. Oh, I don't know. That's not in this article. No, is PZ Myers? I thought I read somewhere that, that he was getting petitions to be on, be on a thing. Turkish game. Oh, show. he might have been petitioning. Him, yeah, he, if, he may not be on it, but I think he was asked. I, I'd be willing to go on it. I think that would be fun. I'd, I'd, be, I'd be willing to go on it if, if somebody on the panel was an atheist and was not duking it out with the big boys. See, that would be good and never happen in Turkey, it but it happen. would be good TV. I'd like to see that done in America. Because you know how... Atheists trying to grind down. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How, how America is always stealing game shows from other countries. I was right. just watching Wipeout last right. weekend. That's awesome. Uh, stolen directly from Japan, and it's just like these people are being tortured, having to run through things that are we, oh, knocking a, them down. This is an awesome idea. We could we could do this reality show style. Totally. Like we could go to areas with high concentrations of like door to door evangelists, yes. Mormons and stuff, and just wait with cameras and <laughs> try to and, and try to try to convert them. Yeah, and then and, it, and the, at the very least, we might see a reduction in door to door evangelism. Now, uh, the thing is, if if there was an atheist included in the panel and they did convert them, what's the prize? Where do you get to go? You get to go to reality. <laughs> you're gonna die and uh, yeah, yeah. you're gonna turn into worm food. <laughs> yeah. That's all I have to offer. 
I don't know, maybe a trip on the space shuttle or something oh, like that. Oh, that would you be know, cool. Kind of some some restrictions apply. That's where our future is, right? In outer space? That's right. I don't know. I don't know, but uh, I, if it weren't in Turkish, I would certainly... Isn't uh, the prize of shedding your religious beliefs prize enough? Well, I, I think that's, Ooh, that's see, actually that's one, good. even though there's not an atheist in the panel, I think any... There's my prediction is that there's going to be a benefit to have anytime the major religions take each other on, you know. Oh yeah, there's, oh, that's yeah. what people spectacle. are like. Well, you're all wrong then. If if, if the arguments are equally good, then yeah, yeah, you know, you know. yeah. I mean, you got guys up there in the panel saying, "Well, our theology says that a guy, you know, was the son of God and born of a virgin and died and was resurrected and you eat his body in the form of a cracker." And then somebody else saying, "No, no, no, our version is that blah blah blah." It's and like God gave us a land contract. That's deal absurd. Five hundred. God, <laughs> yes, deeded the land to us. What do you believe? Well, the years uh, reincarnation of the Buddha. I mean, and, and I don't, I don't know about. Uh, Turkish programming standards or anything like that, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if there were a few plants in the in the group of atheists where, you know, because you can't do an entire series where everyone goes, no, this is this is stupid, and yeah, no one ever that, wins. That would be surprising to me. Like, what what if the atheists really did hold their own? Yeah, uh, wouldn't which that is what I would be expect. a ratings tank. Yeah, right. Well, I, I hope they uh, release this with English subtitles yeah, or something because totally. I'd love to watch it. Because then, then I think the atheists win a, as a whole. If you have ten atheists standing up to um, four religious leaders with a prize on the line, saying, "You know what? No, this is this is silly. I'm not." Could you converting. vote one of the religious gonna... leader panelists off the island? <laughs> <laughs> you have the icon of immunity. Wow. Uh, so yeah, good Turkish television. If we have any listeners in Turkey, turn down your radio. I don't let anyone hear you're listening. <laughs> uh, but if we do, they're not as bad over there. No, in Turkey. I, I know, but uh, please uh, get some video, um, make subtitles for it, and send it to us yeah. somehow. Yes, that's that right. Post great. it on the internet, please. Yeah. And now we're going to finish up with our entry into the Gospel of Doubt this week. When I was a literature student, we studied the great mysteries of the human condition, or so we were told. Outside of class, however, I found myself drawn towards psychology and to one of its startling conclusions. We are made of meat. That voice you hear inside your head, that part of you that's moved by great music? Meat. And if this scares you, it should. Our brains are fragile. A little damage can change everything. Take the patient in the title of Oliver Sacks, the man mistook his wife for a hat. He can't recognize faces, not even those of his loved ones. Consider what it's like to be able to look at your wife, someone you've shared everything with, and a mistaker? For a hat. A hat! An inanimate thing most of us lose the first day of spring. Like many people, I spent a period of time being spiritual but not religious. Meat changed that. It opened up a world of wonder, horror, and mystery that spirituality couldn't compete with. We want to look into each other's eyes and believe we can see the soul, but at the end of the day, you can find yourself looking at a hat. And that truth is worth more contemplation than a dozen religious teachings. And that's all for this week. Until next time, check out our website at www.doubtcast.org. Send us your emails at doubtcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or even Zazzle slash Doubtcast. Keep sending in those entries to the Gospel of Doubt. Uh, check out our website or Facebook group for details on that. 
If you have the time and inclination, write us a review on iTunes and help spread the word. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in next time for more of your skeptical guide to religion here on Reasonable Doubts. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>